Imposter syndrome is so crippling. People will laugh at how crap it is. Am I good enough? You could just make it perfect. It's probably Am I good enough? I'm not showing how crap it is. Delete, delete, delete. I wouldn't expect to be paid. Am I good enough? It's not that good. It's not that good. Imposter syndrome is so crippling. From the Dublin Smartphone Film Festival, it's the Future Film Podcast, a show for mobile filmmakers and content creators designed to help creatives navigate the technical and psychological terrain of future filmmaking. I'm Rob Fitzhugh, and in this episode, we talk to Carl Thomas. Carl runs Creativation Ireland, and in this episode, we focus on imposter syndrome and how it affects your confidence when it comes to sharing your films. It's crap. It's not very good. People will think it's garbage. Regardless of your craft, be it photography, script writing, filmmaking, you might be haunted by this annoying voice in your head telling you, you're not good enough, or your work isn't good, or it's only a matter of time before you get found out. You could be writing your first short film or earning your fifth Oscar. It's a general sense that you will be found out, that it's only a matter of time before the house of cards comes tumbling down. My next guest, Carl, knows all about this. He has a PhD from Trinity College involving the concepts related to creativity and coaches entrepreneur and creatives on excelling and innovation. Carl is an artist himself winning awards for visual design. He is a published poet and musician. Not sure imposter syndrome relates to you? Here is Carl explaining a bit more about it in detail. It's the belief that there's no value in what you've produced and you try to rationalize your achievements by almost explaining them away based on things like look or sort of uh, people like me as a person, but not necessarily the, the quality of my work or, you know, all of these different things that come into play. And that, that has the capacity to sort of permeate through both the creative field and the entrepreneurial field. But there are people sitting at desks in companies all over the country, all over the world who experience this. And I think your, your own sort of thinking there in that other people are experiencing this too, other people's mindsets are, you know, a feature in this game. Um, the, the process of building something and putting it out into the world to be criticized, to be, you know, we, in entrepreneurship, we talk about ugly baby syndrome. Um, nobody <laughs> likes to pour themselves into a product and then have somebody deconstruct that product or negative, negatively criticize it. Um, because we tend to think of these products as extensions of ourselves. That is something that I do see quite a lot in the creative field. So I would have lectured in fine arts for a few years as well. Um, and there's this constant pressure to create something original, but originality is a myth. It's an absolute myth. Um, we exist and just to sort of switch to the academic part of the story, we exist in an intertextual nexus, which essentially means we're constantly being influenced by, by so, from so many different directions. And quite a lot of the time, we're not aware of those influences. So we have the perception of originality or at least being unique. Um, and this is sort of, when we think about what we produce, there's almost like a, a sort of a mandate of what, what it needs to be to be considered creative or unique or, or viable as an entrepreneurial product. And usually originality is a feature of that. And certainly in the, in the creative space, originality is something that's considered to be a selling point of your work. But originality is a myth. It's, you know, we can't, you can only create something original if you're essentially born, live your entire life in a vacuum you know, with yeah. absolutely no exposure to anything else. And even then, you know, the likelihood is somebody else will have already done it. 
so there's this constant pressure to perform a certain way and this certain way isn't reality um, and you know if you're producing new products as an entrepreneur if you're producing art or if you're producing design um, and you don't consider yourself to be original because it, it, imposter syndrome is about you it's not about what other people say about you or how they critique you it's, it's your response to it um, if you believe that you should be original then you're setting yourself up for a fall Just a quick heads up, you do hear some dog barking in the background of this portion of the audio. Uh, one of the trappings of recording from home in this modern times. Uh, bear with us, he does stop shortly. Someone once said to me, comparison is the thief of joy. That the second you compare your art to someone else's, you'll never be happy. Because it'll never live up to your inspiration. I posed this to Carl, and this is what he had to say about it. One of my favorite examples that illustrate what you're talking about on the last course, uh, you know, we've 80 students on this course. We had a guy who has a PhD, who lectures, who is a fantastic conversationalist, who is super, super smart and is a writer, but isn't a writer in his mind because he compares himself immediately to Joyce, the, the sort of the, the Everest the absolute of, of, elite. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're kind of saying, well, you do realize that you know, I use the analogy of football. I said, I, I like to play football. I'm not Ryan Giggs. I'm not Eric Cantona. It doesn't make me any less of a footballer. You know, somebody for playing for Bowes isn't any less of a footballer than somebody playing for United or, you know, Real or Juve. They still are. It's just there's a spectrum within this. And what you're talking about there as well is, you know, drawing influence. But in the context of imposter syndrome, there's sort of, there's, there's five divisions. There's the perfectionist. There's the, the sort of the super person. There's the... The natural genius and that's something where originality is a feature and it might hit on that and um, but there's the soloist which is what you're talking about the expectation that everything i should produce should be produced only by me um and if i'm influenced by somebody else then that kind of devalues me in that space and therefore it's not my work and again this is the the flawed thinking around create something original and i used to get students incredibly frustrated coming into me from other other classes with other lectures and they're like I'm being told constantly to create something original um, and my bigger issue is where students believe they're original go out into the world and then have somebody go oh that's exactly like because they yeah. don't know the scope of the of the history of art for example um, and they haven't engaged with that particular field I'd prefer for people to be comfortable with engaging with influence um, and recognize their value of influence and seek influence um, and dismiss the idea of you know, I need to do this on my own. Um, I need to be 100% present. This is the, you know, and we talk about literature, we talk about the sort of the, the um, omniscient author, you know, who has total control over the narrative. It's a myth. It's very rare, like depending on where you're, say from a creative aspect, depending on where you're, or even from an entrepreneurial standpoint, depending on where you're sharing the work that you do, most of the time it'll be greeted with either someone will like it or indifference. It's very rare that somebody will come out and be like, well, what you've created is terrible or what, unless of course you are, you know, you're, 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 you're putting yourself up to like film critics and things like that. And you're making a commercial piece of art that's to be reviewed. And that's a different kind of mindset because there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, I suppose a, a, an economic side to that and people are trying to make money and they're being paid for their opinions. There's, there's probably something that we probably needs to be defined there. It's not necessarily other people's response to your work. 
that determines whether you're dealing with imposter syndrome or not. Because that, if it's somebody else's response, you you will dismiss positive mm. responses and say, oh, well, they just like it because of me, or they just like it because they just happen to like that specifically, or they just like it because, you know, they clicked like and it didn't really matter. They were indifferent in reality, but they, you will find ways to explain away your achievement. Um, and that's that's a big feature of the imposter syndrome element. You know, I, and I think it's in, what you're saying is really important, especially now, more so than even in the past, because we're exposed to so many opinions. Um, but when we talk about imposter syndrome, we, we kind of have to be conscious as well that there's an impersonation element to it. You feel like you're impersonating somebody else. So I often get when I'm talking to people, you know, about how they're responding to criticism or feedback. Um, it's like, who do you think you're impersonating? And I suppose this kind of goes back to the, as a writer, do you think you're Joyce? As a filmmaker, do you think you're Gus Van Sam? As a musician, do you think you're Chopin or Kurt Cobain? You know, where's your, what's your frame of reference for what validates you? Um, and it's it's important for people to sort of recognize that, that, you know, even in sport, you know, I fight, that's my sport. Who do I compare myself to in that space? Um, and, you know, am I in any way capable of meeting those ridiculous lofty kind of lofty ambitions, yeah. and ambitions yeah <laughs> so, but you, you see work now that's posted online it's very rarely representative of the work as it hangs on the wall mm-hmm. um, you know this is part of the performative and the, the, the presentation element of it um, so are we comparing ourselves to a real competitor um, and then do we respond to the feedback based on this do we you know there's so but it, i think it's important that we recognize that imposter syndrome sort of lives inside of us rather than being an external factor that external yeah factor, so it's yeah. driven 100 percent by you and your yeah. opinions rather than what and and the opinions you do garner from people you would inevitably twist to suit whatever that yeah. inside voice is telling you no i was just gonna say you could show me the most incredible piece of work that you've produced um and i can sit there and have a full critical understanding of it uh, a genuine interest in the piece it could be you know in conflict with my preference but i still see all and i can talk to you and give you really good very positive feedback but if you're engaged with imposter syndrome at the time you'll find a way to shrug that off yeah um, you know as quickly as you know and it's not necessarily that you'll engage with the negative quicker you'll just find a way to dismiss it because it's completely internalized because i i work with i work with students myself who are who are so crippled by an idea that people won't like what they do that they either don't create anything or they slave over things to yeah. a to a point where it becomes debilitating where they're you know i, I gotta reshoot this shot over and over and over again and it's a simple thing and they've already gotten it you know, 10 takes yeah. going like i gotta get because there's some reference point in their mind that they're trying to match and I know that there is, you'll hear stories out there and you'll, you'll talk about your Stanley Kubrick's of the world with their 300 takes and their whatever. And, and, and that's their particular approach to, to think But that's not the way everyone's mindset is. And I find that some people are so crippled by it. And I used to, when I, even when I studied, say, film and I worked with students, it was, the class was always split down the middle. There was that, there was that class who were like, there was the guys who went out and the girls who went out and shot something, right? And then dealt with the fallout of that. And they didn't like it, but they something inside them forced them to go on and then there was the counterweight to that which was the students who just couldn't do it i mean if you if you compare say Elia kazan who allowed a huge amount of freedom for actors on a set and and sort of gave ownership over scenes and setting scenes and, and the acting in in a set to the likes of a wes anderson who has got almost total like militaristic 
presence in all of his work. He is the, like the definition of the orator. You know, he's constantly mm -hmm. present in delivery, in the, the writing, in the shooting. You know, even his engagement with designers are perfectly um, positioned to facilitate his vision. One is neither better than the other. You know, this, you know, he may reshoot, like his aunt may look for that, you know, unique original moment in the scene, you know, um, Brando putting on the glove while he's sitting on the swing um, and on the waterfront, I think it is, you know, completely um, outside of like his aunt's ownership of, of, the, of the film. Students are told at times, and I, and I do see this, that you have to have angst. You have to, you know, struggle with this. There has to be difficulty for you. You have to be neurotic to make a good film or create a good painting or create um, the, the best songs, you know. Um, but this is, a, this is something that we kind of tend to see as being replicated repeatedly in the biographies and the celebration of a particular type of artist because culturally we prefer our creatives to be a little bit left of center and a little bit disturbed. But just phenomenal graphic designers sitting at desks every day of the week, get up in the morning, go and create phenomenal work. I mean, David Carson is one of my favorite graphic designers. I mean, there's not a huge amount of um, evidence or narrative around him really struggling and having to sort of externalize this internal angst. Some of this is preference and who do you want to replicate? And, you know, if you look at say even actors, you, know, you look at say uh, James Dean from 1953 to 1955, became the kind of the stereotype, the, the prototype or the, the kind of the template that other actors should model themselves on. And if they weren't angsty, if they didn't have that, well then were they really an actor? You know, were they, and you see that with artists. I mean, one of the points that I used in my research was that, you know, Jackson Pollock changed his name to Paul because it sounded more like an artist's name. The guy, you know, I, I mentioned in, in an earlier conversation with you, the inactive biography, you know, um, validating your work based on the persona that's attached to it. Um, and you may spot that the, the first take is perfect, but if you're not seen to agonize over it and do it 200 more times like Kubrick, then is it really good art? You know, are you really the orator or are you just a tradesman who's, you know, shooting a film? We're sort of talking about two ends of a spectrum where you're saying you, you're, you're, you're either in, you know, when you're a creative and I'm, I feel like we're talking about from perspective of you're producing art and then you mentioned a graphic designer and I'm wondering how does that mindset shift when you take a creative and you put them in a professional environment because suddenly your measurements are now, it's no longer, ah, uh, you know, you know, sometimes you don't have the time to agonize over something and because you're working to a deadline or you're creating, you're trying to earn money, you're trying to earn a wage from it. So I'm wondering, does that attitude, when you start mixing the, the business and the creative together, how being dictated by wages yeah. and times and deadlines in that capacity changes it? So there, there's a huge amount in what you've asked there, a huge amount. And I actually, I get quite frustrated with this, the myth of the creative, because again, it's grown up through the classical period. Um, Vasari has a lot to answer for, um, writing in, this, in the 1500s. Michelangelo actually has a lot to answer for as well. Um, the, the reality is we have what we call now a growth mindset, the capacity to move into different spaces and do things in different ways. People have preferences, absolutely. Um, there are people who are working in offices, who are working in the financial sector, who are working in tech, who would have all the same personality manifestations as somebody who considers themselves a creative, um, as in somebody who paints or somebody who makes music or somebody who directs films who doesn't want to be sitting at a desk from nine to five, you know, who doesn't want to be 
wearing a suit, who doesn't want to be going to business meetings and, and doing that sort of stuff. The difference for me a lot of the time is the academic path that these people have come through. Um, creatives, so on fine arts courses, you're surrounded by other people who have no aspirations necessarily to sit in an office. That's reinforced because the people who are lecturing you are reinforcing that yeah. that ideology. So it's this sort of conditioning as much as anything. We're conditioned to, to perform as creatives as much as we are to feel like we're creatives. Because there are people who feel like creatives and sit at a desk. And there's there's an author whose name I can't remember at the moment who says, I'm struck by inspiration every morning at nine o'clock when I sit down at my desk. <laughs> you know? and, yeah. um, th there's, a, there's a huge amount of myths around creativity that have been with us for a long time and are ingrained in culture. But the fact of the matter is, if you get the, if you look at say the likes of a George Lowe's back in the in the sixties, who was a designer, a graphic designer, or a Saul Bass, who produced incredible work, but he produced it to sell. Uh, he produced it within a, a sort of a time frame and a format that made business a financially viable avenue, aligned with the creativity. In reality, I mean, you talk about filmmaking. I I make videos for music the vision at the outset is probably the creative aspect but when you spend hours looking at uh, premiere pro stretching something or shrinking it or you know tweaking it slightly by a second here or there that's a technical skill set it's not necessarily a creative skill set the technicality might inform the creative outcome at the end but it's quite often people on the other end who don't who aren't creative or haven't studied any of the adobe um stuff who will look at this and go wow it's incredibly creative but you know you've spent a huge amount of hours doing technical work, not necessarily creative work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but sometimes there is, uh, and then sometimes the flip side of that is, is you, you, you create something, uh, you create something, and then when you go to the technical side of it, you discover something else. You literally create something yep. else from that. Um, yep. But again, you don't know that. That's, and, but the downside of that is, it's like that fixes and post adage where someone says, you know, if you expect creativity in the technical side of it, you're in trouble. Do you know what I mean? Because you need to go in with some sort of mindset that you're going to create something uh, or, or you, I, and sometimes it's not even a mindset that you want to create something. Sometimes you just have this burning desire to get what's in your head out, be it in a painting, be it in a film, whatever, and whatever technical side of that might change. And I, I and then when you get into the filmmaking process as a, as a commerce thing, it becomes different because then you, you, you've got the original creative idea and then that becomes dictated to by other people along the way. And, and one of the things about, say the technical side i do an awful lot of technical post-production work for other people so i take other people's stuff and, and and put it together and for me it's 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 joyous because i feel i'm detached from the creative side of it so i feel i'm handed a bunch of stuff that i had no say in the creative element of it and my job is to put it together so it eliminates any mindset from me that that you know oh nobody's gonna like it oh, nobody's going to, it's not great because for some reason it's detached from me because I feel like I'm putting together someone else's art and yeah. I am very much structuring meat and bones type person and the end result, be it liked by the audience or not, is not doesn't land on my shoulders because my job was to assemble somebody else's art. Um, yeah. So it's actually a process I really enjoy. But then when you ask me, say, to create something, I'm filled with all that same, same sort of stuff. And I will ask, I mean, I, 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 I will ask for, for constant validation from people around me. What do you think is, what do you think of that? And even if I get solid validation, I still won't share it with people on the off chance that, I don't know, you know, on the off chance that it won't look right or the information in it won't be correct or, you know, and it's a strange sensation because 
part of you thinks that everybody out there has conquered this and is anyone who's sharing their art and their work has, has figured it out. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of times I look at people and I think they're doing it. And I, I, I but I, the detachment for me as an example would be is I can't see that my reaction to their work would be their reaction to my work. It just doesn't, it doesn't commute. It doesn't connect. There's something missing. I tend to think imposter syndrome is one of the most peculiarly egocentric yeah. um, experiences because you immediately focus on you and your feeling about it and forget that there's other humans around you who are, there's a belief now that um, imposter syndrome affects roughly 75% of the population. And even calling it a syndrome is kind of misrepresentative mm. of the, the broader engagement <laughs> people have with it, that it is you know, pretty prevalent. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of I, I tend to think that one of the ways it's sort of deconstructed is to get people to think about the fact that other people experience it. Other people have all of these sort of insecurities. Of course, they're not going to walk around and introduce themselves to you and say, hey, who are you? I just put a piece of work up. And by the way, I'm terrified that people are going to respond negatively to it. <laughs> you know, and then you kind of go, oh, me too. That's not a conversation people generally have. But actually trying to facilitate whereby people have that conversation has the capacity to sort of um, remove imposter syndrome or reduce the feeling of imposter syndrome where we're making it clear that people, again, it's because we pour so much and, and actually creatives tend to produce a lot of products. If you think of them, you know, a film as a product or a, a video or a song as a product, all of them are individual products, whereas entrepreneurs tend to produce one or two here and there, you know, so it's putting the one out and having to get that feedback. Seeking validation, I don't see a problem with that, um, you know, in the context of people. It came up again in a course recently, you know, we talk about, we ask people, why are they here? And this is working with creatives, you know, what are you looking for? What are you, what are you hoping to achieve? Quite a lot said, look, I want to get to a space where I'm making money. I'd say, okay, great. One person said, I need validation. You know, but I shouldn't need validation. Say, so, well, let's start there. If you feel you need it now, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What, it, what does that give you moving forward? Um, but asking people for feedback and validation, that's not necessarily a feature of imposter syndrome. And the unwillingness to share the work isn't necessarily a feature of imposter syndrome. Um, that can be self-esteem. That can be uh, shyness. That can be professionalism to a degree. Now, a higher level, you know, perfectionism is a feature of the, the imposter syndrome um, the range of feelings that people have in there, but there can be other things at play that are stopping you from doing that. The other thing is if you, one of the big areas that I engage with creatives around is how they price their work. Oh, yeah. If you put your work out there, somebody's <laughs> going to say, well, how much is that? And then that's, oh, that's like, let's just build, dig a big hole and jump into it. You know, yeah. doing everything they can to avoid it. Because if you feel like you're an imposter, then adding a value to that almost concretizes the, you know, the, the, um, the fraudulence that goes along with being an imposter. And you inevitably end up sort of, ah, like, as I said, uh, my partner is, is, is a hairstylist. She has been for years, but she would also devalue her work. And that's an art in and of itself. And she would also devalue her work. Ah, sure. It only took me this amount of time or, or because it's something you, in, also it's because it's something you enjoy doing. You mm -hmm. don't associate it with work and you're like, ah, I don't mind. I'll put it together or whatever. I'll do it. And, and, and that's fine from, I find from the perspective of, of when you're, not doing it as a professional or you're not doing it in a, in a professional space but the minute you move into professional space trying to a, a allocate a price or a value and you're it's not just your work it's your time and that's something that yeah. people don't seem to connect there's something you said in there which which sort of triggered me a little bit the fact that we enjoy creating what we create 
um, means that we don't seek, you know, financial remuneration, remuneration for it. As you mentioned, your partner, mine is in the other room. She's a scientist, absolutely loves what she does, like loves it. More passion for what she does as a scientist than 90% of artists or creatives that I meet. And that's the same because I've met her staff on evenings out and things like that. And they're all super, super passionate about <laughs> what they do. And they all get paid a huge amount of money for yeah. what they do. Um, so they skip into work, even on rainy days. Like, I mean, there's there's excitement from the night before about a new project. I mean, so again, th these are the sort of things we need to deconstruct. Just because we enjoy what we do doesn't necessarily mean we shouldn't get paid for what we do. So that's a bit, that's one of the things we need to go, okay, get that out of our vocabulary straight away. Um, you know, in terms of then how do we charge for what we do? And, you know, while feeling like an imposter, I mean, I love the line, what's your budget for this? Um, yeah, it's great. But again, it's not just creatives who are paid with exposure. You know, an awful lot of entrepreneurs are invited to give talks at events or, you know, can you come and facilitate this workshop? Or can you, you know, can we bring your product into our space and, you know, we'll prop one up over here and get people using it. Sure, we'll take photographs and it'll be great. And people, so the, the, the kind of the, the pay element as it relates to imposter syndrome exists in a lot of different spaces. It's just that people don't talk about it as much as they do in the creative space. Um, yeah and, and it is funny because the creative space is the only space that i know of where there's almost an expectation that people would pay you in exposure if you know what i mean so, so i can guarantee you that that's not true really we, okay yeah i can 100 percent because my own experience but also the experience of other people who are entrepreneurs and are asked to do i see this quite a lot but because i coach a lot of smes yeah and they're, you know, they're saying, oh, what do I do? They've asked me to come in and they've asked me to, you know, run this event or they've asked me to do this or that. Um, but they're not talking about money. They haven't mentioned money or they're, and this, these are big companies that are inviting people in, in the business space, not as yeah. creatives. Um, and the expectation is that, you know, if you're early stage or a very basic example, a guy I'm coaching at the moment, um, who probably won't hear this song, <laughs> yeah. um, a mechanic essentially, you know, um, you know, given a, a sort of a generic, but he's essentially a mechanic um, setting up a new business and is struggling with the idea of what do I charge? Because, you know, I'm only, I'm only new in this space, even though he's been working in that particular space for about 20 odd years, you know, but he's setting up his own venture. Uh, people have said, look, what we'll do is we'll bring in a few bits and pieces. You'll fix them. We'll talk about it. We'll, you know, using the language of exposure. I don't know if there's anything more distant from creativity than being a mechanic or an engineer, you know, and that's the sort of, but I see it in the entrepreneurial space so often. It's just that it's, and it's something I kind of want to make visible mm -hmm. because it's not something that's discussed in the entrepreneurial space. There's the expectation that it's responded to with like, no, they're just griping or order. They, I mean, look, you go into business as a graduate, the vast majority of people do internships. Yeah, you know, so they work in there for free, which is essentially a process of exposure. Um, whereas graduates coming out of arts degrees or fine arts degrees uh, as creatives are either going to go to work for themselves or work in another field and get paid. But there's, you know, it's a little bit abstract. But an awful lot of people are expected to work for exposure and for free in a lot of different spaces. It's just that it's not talked about quite as much as it is in the creative space. Yeah, no, that's because I'm, I'm, yeah, and that's, I didn't know because from my perspective, I'm always looking at in, 
in these Facebook groups and things like that, where people are, are, are saying, listen, I have a film shoot coming up. I need a cast and crew, but I don't have a budget. I can't afford to pay. It will yeah. work for a show reel, all that sort of stuff. And, and you could gradually see over time that people were kind of like, listen, advertise it's unpaid or advertise it as paid. But it, again, that's my bubble, I suppose, and the exposure to the world that I'm in that I see. And, and you can see people saying, well, why? And the conversations that pop up are, why is there an expectation that we would do these things for exposure and do these things for free and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff? So my assumption then from being exposed to this single narrative in the bubble that I'm in is that that is the way it works. But I mean, if it's, if it's yeah, I mean, maybe it is just a case that people talk about it more. I don't know why, but it could be, maybe it's because yeah. people who are being creative are then devaluing themselves a little bit as opposed to someone else and they're saying you know maybe i maybe this sort of stuff shouldn't be paid for or maybe i don't know so i mean it's it's i i suppose it's two different mindsets and up until until five years ago i would have 100 percent agreed with you that was a that was a problem specific to the creative space um now that i work in a lot of corporates now that i work in a lot of different companies and coach an awful lot of people starting businesses I see that it's much more common than, than I'd originally thought. Um, but it is a more open narrative in the creative space. I know it's funny. I like, I've done events, I've done public speaking events with the expectation of exposure. And then, and again, I've chased for photographs from the event and things like that, because without, with the absence of pay, that is a currency in and of itself. And without even getting that, then you're, 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 you're find yourself kind of, well, what, what value did I get from, from that? And I suppose it's got to be value from everything you do to a degree. I, the- I use an example. Um, so I was in bands for a few years when I was younger. Um, I made more money taking money at the door than I did playing music. Um, <laughs> you know, a promoter because they liked me because I was presentable because I, you know, fit the brand at the time. I say, look, can you come in and take money for us at the other gigs? Say, yeah, no problem. I get paid for that, but I never got paid for playing gigs. Um, you know, and it's, there was far more financial investment in rehearsing, buying equipment, all that sort of stuff. But the, the only money I would have really made from music was um, busking or from taking money at the door for gigs. It's, it's, a, it's a system that's, that's in place, you know, that, that there's an expectation that people should do things. And the reality is in other, in other, um, in other fields, it's not questioned and it's not understood and it's not explored. Not everyone looks at creativity the same way. I wanted to get a better understanding of these students and where they get this confidence from. Have you had people, have you had to, and you say 75%, have you had students who've come in and have just been like, I don't, you know, it's grand, I'll just create and share and move on. And they're just, yeah. That's, that's my mindset. <laughs> I, I, I have this weird performative switch. I don't know if I learned it through years of martial arts and competing at like mm-hmm. international level where um you just step on the area and that's it you're fighting um, and you have to leave everything outside of it and i have this really nice ability to kind of switch myself off from um, i criticism hurts everybody you know mm-hmm. um, especially because sometimes we feel it's personal criticism rather than a, a constructive criticism to improve the music um but i yeah the students that i work with who are just so proud of everything they do um <clears throat> you know incredibly proud of everything they do think it's incredibly original um which i always think is a bit more of an obstacle i think you know yeah you don't want to you don't want to crack the enthusiasm on the way to supporting a more rounded engagement with their with their field because generally if somebody thinks that they're fantastically original it's just that they don't have a depth of knowledge that supports yeah. a, a greater level of awareness 
but um yeah no you've got students who walk in and they just want everybody in the world to know what they do um and they have total faith in it and they've no problem getting up and singing in front of people they've no problem in performing they've no problem in showing their work they're you know it's just out there do you find that is that 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 number decreases over to, in the sense I'm saying, do you find that that younger students coming in would be more open to the idea of sharing their work and, and things as opposed to sort of a, a, do you think it might be a, a sort of a generational mindset that will change over time? I suppose is where I'm getting at. Or... So there's a few things there. Um, we don't fully develop um, until we're in our late twenties. Our prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop. And that's generally what is responsible for impulse control which one of my theories is that's why so many young people have changed history because they mm-hmm. haven't, they haven't, they haven't taught it true. Yeah. yeah, it's fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you mentioned something earlier, which resonated with me as well. Um, an awful lot of younger students that I'm working with now are just mentally sort of hamstrung by the fear of sharing something because when we would share something when we were younger or when I would share something when I was younger or when I play a gig, it was literally the people in the room that was it. Um, if I shared a painting, I always hated going to exhibitions that had my painting in them because there were more people, but I still did it. Um, the, now if a young person under 20 shares a piece of work, it's global. It's mm. everywhere. Yeah. Um, I'm working on a project at the moment with the Disability Services in Trinity, and they have a, a co-op group of young students, and one of them is fantastically creative and makes, makes films, capturing the stories of other students and what they're experiencing. Up until she started working with us, she would make them, put them on YouTube, and that was it. But we've really pushed her to share these because there's a currency to it. Um, it supports the goals of, the, um, of, of that, that group. But now her work has gone from being seen by maybe 10 people to being seen by hundreds of people and being seen by maybe thousands of people. I share her work. Um, so it's seen in universities all over the world. Um, that's great when somebody's sharing something that's really positive and it's got a nice message and nobody's going to be particularly negative about students talking about their disabilities. But if you share something that's maybe controversial, if you share an opinion that's not with the kind of the mainstream um, ideology, then the response to that is visceral and the response yeah. to that is global. And it's not just one person saying, don't know if you should say that or a lecturer saying, listen, I think we need to err on the side of safety. It's, cancel culture kicks in you know it's total yeah. shutdown it's you know and i know you mentioned like some people will either click like or they'll be indifferent to it but it depends on the kind of work you're producing um, and it depends on you know who takes a, a disinterest or a dislike to you um yeah so well, <laughs> no that's fair enough I, I what i meant earlier on is i because I, I often think about my internet bubble and I, cause I, I always think of the i always think like twitter and the internet has a room and everybody's talking and my room is full of you know my room is full of kind of shy creatives who who hey do you like my work hey what do you think of my work what do you think of my work and occasionally in other rooms i can hear people shouting pure venom and rage and bile and occasionally those people drift into my room and they kind of give out and they talk but i can imagine that uh and 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 and, sorry the the response to that is the output that i that put out uh, in that room is quite positive it's quite you know i i would never express an opinion i would never express because i just don't think my room is the space for that but I would imagine that if your room was one of those inhospitable terrains, putting something in there, expressing an opinion, a piece of art, you invite that whole mob mentality culture, yeah. which, 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 which is an extremist of, you know, you either really, really love something or you really, really hate something. And no one yeah. in the middle of the room can be like, 
I just think it's okay. Do you know what I mean? You've got to have that. And I can imagine that that would be incredibly daunting for somebody to want to share original art in, or anything that expresses yeah. something. But I mean, you and I, uh, I don't know how far behind me you are. I'm not a digital native. So yeah. my world construct, my schemas that are in place are designed based on the fact that if I do something that's crap or terrible or that's, you know, people don't like, it's probably two people who are going to tell me, you know, whereas digital natives, so people in their 20s, millennials, Gen Y, um, uh, Gen Z, they're all kind of coming up with the, um, the global response. And I see this actually in seminars and a couple of other lecturers have said it to me in seminars that students are terrified to give their opinion because again it's not just the other people in the seminar the expectation is that the response is going to be much much bigger Um, and that can be you know and it's not imposter syndrome um that's a viable fear um and And it is and and the worry there is that i mean a a lot of conversation over history a lot of conversations have come from art and the art that we've created where they've challenged ideas and they've challenged things and the fear there is that not only will people not express opinions verbally, but then they won't express themselves through art. There's a peculiar kind of dichotomy in play at the moment, whereby our expectation of negative response is very, very high. But the reality of the negative response is people saying they don't like your work quite a lot. Whereas if you look at the 1940s, uh, if the Nazis didn't like your work, (laughs) then your work was gone. You were potentially gone to a gulag or to... You know, that was a pretty yeah, extreme it was response. Life and you know, death, yeah. That, that was real cancel culture. Um, you know, and so there's, there, is the, there is the difference um, in there that we need to be conscious of. But, you know, there's, a, I think, a, an increase of a third of students now registering with mental health challenges. There's an awful lot of evidence to suggest that that's got an association with digital culture and with the kind of the anxiety that grows up around that. Um, so there's an awful lot of in play and then for you mentioned the kind of the shy creatives um, I know a huge amount of creatives they're not all shy I would yeah there's you know I've been working with 80 recently on a course um, I've lectured to hundreds across a range of different courses I could probably pick out the ones who fit that stereotype um, uh-huh, okay you know I could I could comfortably whereas you know, maybe it's what I do in the room that makes people comfortable. Maybe because I deconstruct the performative element of it, the enacted biography, you know, we should be creative. We should be introverts. We should be withdrawn. Um, and these are, these are sort of manifestations that happen when we try to fit in with a group more so than being specifically representative of who we are as individuals. Um, you know, I would, yeah, I mean, there's, look, there's, the, you know, the introversion, the extroversion, the ambiverts, um, in between, there's there's no, and this is anecdotal because it's purely my experience, but I certainly have seen students who are creatives, absolutely won awards for being creative, who definitely don't fit the shy reclining model of, of yeah. introverts, you know. And as creatives, every time we start something, it's it, it doesn't begin perfect on the page or on the screen. And we edit it and we, you know, we pick from a series of different shots that we've done and then we put the best ones that satisfy our goal most. That's all a process of iteration. That's all a process of trial and error. And yet we put that in a very specific space in our process and then forget about the value of that (laughs) Um, and then move into total perfection, you know. Yeah. Um, Whereas if we maintain the mindset of iteration, um, and yeah. just sort of the, the sense that, well, it doesn't have to be perfect today because we can refine it and get it better and better and better as we move to other stages of our process. Then there will be far less of the sort of the, the, ang- the anxiety and the stress 
I, I, I find that because it's something I see quite a lot of um, with students on the different exercises that I'll get them to do, that they want perfection on day one. I say, but at what point in your creative <laughs> process have you ever had perfection yeah. on day one? No first brushstroke on a canvas, no first shot that's filmed is is the final product. You know, there's always more added. There's things refining taken back. and retuning and yeah, iteration, completely right the way through. And yet, there's this expectation or this belief that something should be perfect on day one. And I just I just do not understand that. I don't understand why anybody would expect to be perfect on day one. I was wondering, was there any takeaways people could use who are struggling with creativity or sharing their work at this moment in time? So I posed that question to Carl. What is the benefit of sharing for you? You know, if you share this and, and go big with this, look for the benefits, look for the, the positive elements in this, because the reality is we build up the negative. Our brains are predisposed towards being loss averse and negative. We see the risk. That's part of our genetic makeup, our sort of evolutionary echoes. It, uh, you've probably heard that like the, you see a bush shaking as a, as a sort of prehistoric being and you think it could eat me or I could eat it. Yeah. And our brain will always go with, it could eat me, let's get out of here. Yeah. Um, so we're pre-designed in that way. Critically engaged with what's the risk. You know, what is the genuine risk of me sharing this? People might not like it. So what? Um, people might say it's not particularly well done. So what? It's the first one I've done. Or it's the second one I've done. Or they're going to get better. Or some people just don't like things. We need to have these mantras prepared um, in play. And then the other side of it is the benefits. What are the benefits to me sharing this? This is the first step in my process. Bukowski talked about you only know you're a writer when you're getting rejection letters. Otherwise, yeah. you're just a person sitting at home. You know, a real writer submits work. Um, so it's about the benefits, you know, and in any business. And this is, this is tricky for students as well to get them to think of being creative, being a creative as being a business venture. Um, the first step in any business venture is creating awareness. So... I reference it very often. My mother used to say to me, nobody's going to knock on the bedroom door and ask you if you want to be an actor. Nobody's going to knock on the bedroom door and ask you if you want to be a musician. You know, you have to sort of buy the ticket and, you know, take the ride. I think it's, yeah, Andres Thompson, maybe he said that. Yeah. Um, but look for the benefits and write them down. Be really strategic about this. Get them down, get them visible, get them on the wall beside you. Um, but this is part of a process. You know, it's not something that you're going to crack on day one. And your brain will find ways to convince you not to do the thing you want to do. Um, it'll, you, we love being in the comfort zone. We love that safe middle. Well, if I don't put anything out there, nobody's ever going to really tell me I'm crap at what I do. So we get to sit in that nice space of potential. Oh, I could have been a phenomenal filmmaker, but I never really got my chance. Yeah. So you did get your chance. You just didn't take it. Um, you designed the world to... So it's about... I mean, I always say to, because I, you know, my PhD is in creativity. I lecture in it. The first step to being creative is to be creative, to do something. Mm -hmm. um, it's to start momentum, get your work visible, get it out there. Um, but it is a, it's, it's a process and it is going to be difficult and expect that it's going to be difficult. You know, expect that you're going to have challenges with it and that's okay as well. It's perfectly okay to not feel immediately comfortable with putting your work out in front of people because that's not because you're creative. That's because you're a human being. And that's the same in, you know, I work on graduate courses in corporate spaces. I, I coach in the executive level. Right the way up, people have a fear of failure. 
people have mm. a fear of being found out. That's the imposter syndrome element. People want to generate and put out new ideas, but status management is in play. Oh, I don't know how people are going to respond to this. Don't know if this impacts my status if it's not right. Does that then devalue my role in the team? This is all, this is not just creativity. Creative, this is yeah. human. Um, and I think when we get people to recognize that these aren't just features of the creative persona, then we get to step out of that shadow because it is an obstacle because the expectation is to be a real creative. You know, if you talk about in film, then you have to be a Kubrick, a bit eccentric. You have to be uh, a James Dean in acting, you know, or a Johnny Depp now, who I just think is shocking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so much potential. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you have to be that sort of extreme. Um, if you're going to be a writer, you have to, you know, be a, like, obviously I've got my preferences, but there's, there's a sort of a, a value based on the persona that validates the art. And that's just not true. That's, that's just people selling. That's the people in the business side of the creative field selling. selling the you, it's not yeah. The, yeah. It's, you know, it's the myth of the creative persona, this sort of expectation of melancholy. I mean, I use Michelangelo as an example. He used to de destroy his preparatory stretches, uh, sketches to give the impression that the work was fully formed. This is the sort of the Kantian idea of immediacy and genius that goes yeah. along with creativity. That, um, you know, this sort of the innate skill set. Francis uh, Bacon destroyed a, a lot of his early work to give the impression that his masterpiece period was the only work he ever produced. This is in alignment with the myth of the creative being an instantaneous and immediate genius. That's, that's where that comes from. Because I, I always use the example of Botticelli, you know, Botticelli's Birth of Venus, Primavera, that kind of gorgeous, gorgeous works. That was a tradesman going to work. That was a guy yeah. who you could also hire to paint your canopies. Um, you know, but over time, there's a, a fantastic essay that I reference. It's called the, um, the, uh, the Van Gogh effect. Um, yeah. by an author named Natalie Einrich, who sort of deconstructs a lot of the sort of the myths that grow up around what a creative is and how we celebrate. And, you know, this is getting a bit sort of academic, but the, you know, that inversion from the sort of the, the pre-modern to the modern to the post-modern, that binary inversion, um, it was traditionally felt that all creativity was divinely inspired, um, mm -hmm. that it all came from God. Then when Van Gogh came around and we came into the likes of the work from Freud, who sort of shifts that binary, your creativity has to come from the hardship you've experienced in your life. So what you have are people who have never really experienced hardship scrambling to find hardship yeah. Yeah. Um, and promoting that in, and biographers are a big culprit for doing that. Um, and you see it with Andy Warhol, who was actually by comparison to a lot of his peers, was quite well off as a young person. He was one of the only families that owned their own home and things like that. He would go out and buy expensive clothes and then rip them up and you know tarnish them to look like he was maintain that illusion. Was. Yeah. yeah, you know um, Pollock did the same pretty much. You know he would have intentionally spattered his clothes with paint to let people know he was an artist. Um, wore a cowboy hat to kind of exemplify his you know Wild West upbringing, even though he didn't really have one. Um, you know, it's it's sure, something it's, we it's. Good, it's good solid marketing. That's Carl Thomas. If you want to find out more about Carl and his work, head over to creativation.ie. You're listening to the Future Film Podcast from the Dublin Smartphone Film Festival, and you can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.
If you want to contact us, reach out to us on social media under hashtag DubSmartFF or head over to www.dublinsmartphonefilmfestival.com. I'm Rob Fitzhugh and you've been listening to the Future Film Podcast. Now, to send you off on your next creative endeavour, we thought we'd leave you with some positives from our listeners. Imposter syndrome, what's that? (laughs) Um, What I've realised is that with imposter syndrome, the more you publish your work, the less you feel um, that your work isn't valuable. I suppose when you're talking about imposter syndrome, you could look at the likes of you know, Steven Spielberg, who was technically an imposter because he snuck onto the set of Universal during a tour, jumped off the bus, hid in a bathroom, and then um, waited until it left. And then, you know, he met up with someone, said he was a director, came back the next day with his dad's suitcase and, uh, you know, just waited at the security guard and that was it. So long as you believe in yourself and what you are aiming to achieve either personally or professionally, that's the most important thing.